All right, church, good morning. It's delightful to see a baptism already and get to take communion. It's a special morning, lots of cool stuff happening today. Uh, but let's get in the Word. So I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them up to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, as Pastor Kevin just prayed, we are continuing in our Gospel That Changes the World series. If you're just joining us or if you're kind of picking us up in the middle of the series, uh, what we're doing is studying the second half of the book of Acts, uh, kind of looking at Paul's missionary journeys and how he and his team accomplished the mission of God. And many of us are here today and have heard the word of Christ because of what happened in the second half of the book of Acts. So it's important for us to look at these scripture passages and, and learn from them what they can teach us about what it means to be on mission. Hopefully, you've already started to see thus far that that God has called you, yes, I'm talking to you specifically, He's called each of you to be on mission in some sort of way for for a purpose for His glory. Uh, We don't always know exactly what that is, and that might look different for different people, but all of us are called to be on mission for Christ. And perhaps maybe you're thinking about being a a part of a church plant, which we've mentioned a few different times and have introduced you to some names of some of our church planters. Next week, you'll get to hear from one of those uh, who's planting a church in uh, northeastern Ohio. Uh, Or maybe you're praying about God's power to be displayed in your life as you're on mission with your neighbors and your family and your friends. Uh, Or Pastor Matt last week gave us a really great insight into how we can leverage our homes and our skills and our vocations for the glory of God through Jesus Christ, whatever it might be, hopefully you've joined us in praying about that. But if you're like me, maybe you need things a little more spelled out and maybe a little more like simple, like church planting for dummies. You know, I'm kind of like one of those guys. I need a little extra explanation. And and so what I want to do this morning is is to kind of look at one passage in Acts chapter 19 and kind of how does this actually work? How do you actually start reaching out to your neighbors? How do you actually see a church being planted? How do you see the mission of God being accomplished in a city? And we're going to look at Paul's interest and mission in the city of Ephesus, and it's an amazing, amazing story. But just to give you a little context of where we've been, again, if you're just joining us, last week we talked about how Paul was leveraging his team and people like Aquila and Priscilla, and he used them to, to help train a guy like Apollos who didn't understand the Holy Spirit yet, and so stuff was happening there. And in the beginning of Acts 19, where the, the first seven verses, Paul comes into Ephesus and finds the same scenario. He meets these disciples. They don't understand the Holy Spirit yet, and so Paul says, hey, let me pray for you. He lays hands on them. He prays for them. The Spirit moves and fills them. They begin speaking in tongues, and this begins an unleashing of the Spirit's power in the the city of Ephesus. It's incredible, and this amazing movement of revival happens in this city. And so what we want to do this morning is read what happens and then make some observations of how we can learn from it. So let's read starting in chapter 19 in verse 8. This is what the Word of God says. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, the way of Christ. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, and he had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Wow, all of them. 
God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Here's a hanky. Now you're free and that's crazy, right? Crazy stuff. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke, emphasis on tried, to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Again, I don't know if that's how they said it. That's how I envision it. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day, the evil spirit answered them. This was not what they were expecting. Jesus, I know. And Paul I know about, but who are you? <laughs> that would make you pee down your leg, right? <laughs> then the man said, the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This is in the Bible, folks. It's awesome. When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number had pra- who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, uh, the, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia, After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And so he sent his two helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while staying in the province of Asia a little longer. Woo! What a story. What an amazing explosion of God's power and revival in a city and some quite surprising turns along the way. But if I could sum up the point of the message or the point of uh, what happened in the process of what happened in this city, it would be in this one sentence. In your bulletin so you can follow along. This is what it is. Intentional mission fueled by God's power makes disciples who make disciples. Intentional mission fueled by God's power makes disciples who make disciples. This is how it works. Now, let's break that down section by section, and hopefully this will be helpful for you as you begin to think, how do I start this? How do I begin living on mission myself? Well, it all starts with intentionality. It all starts with intentional mission. And we see this in verse 8 through 10, that if you've been following along in our series, you might have noticed a pattern that Paul seems to do the same thing every city he goes to. He does the same kind of method of reaching the city for Christ. And here it is. First, he goes into the synagogue, which is where most of the Jews were. And so Paul would begin reasoning with the Jews to speak about Christ. He'd show them in the scriptures how Jesus was the promised Messiah. And some would believe, speaking about his resurrection. But oftentimes, the Jews would reject him and rebel and often even maybe fight against him or threaten to stone him. And so Paul would kind of wipe his hands of the Jews and leave and go to the Gentiles. And typically he would go to some like lecture hall or a teaching place. In Athens, back in chapter 17, he goes to a place called the Areopagus, which was like a theater where they debated. And here in Ephesus, he goes to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus, where he begins proclaiming Christ to the Gentiles. But this was his strategy. But don't miss the time stamps here about how long this took. In just three verses, this is describing two years of time. Two years, 
right? He was reasoning in the synagogue for three months. He was in the synagogue talking with the Jews for three months. And then for two years, he was in the hall of Tyrannus. Two years. And this strategy was so effective, so extremely effective, that every single Jew and Greek in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Can you imagine that? What a strategy, right? Can you imagine if every single person in, in Wauseon or in Fulton County heard the word of the Lord? Can you imagine if every single person in northwest Ohio or in the tri-state area, or if we go plant a church in a city in Mozambique, Africa, if every single person in that city heard the word of the Lord? Man, that's amazing. Is that even possible? It is, but it starts with intentionality. It didn't happen by accident for Paul, and it doesn't happen by accident for us. Now, I want to explain a little bit of how we go about doing this, kind of on a macro level and a micro level. So on a macro level, kind of the 10,000-foot view of what, how do we as a church live this intentional mission out, and then on a micro level. So on a macro level, you've probably heard this before, but here is Crossroads' mission statement. This should not be surprising to you. You've probably heard this. We want everyone to discover and grow to maturity and mission in Christ. This is our mission statement as a church. This affects everything that we do and why we do everything. This is why we preach. This is why we do Bible studies. This is why we do small groups. This is why we have youth group and children's ministries and men's and women's ministries. This is why we do everything we do because we want to see each of you, including ourselves, grow up to maturity and mission in Christ, to know Jesus and to grow on mission in him. And that isn't just a mission statement for Crossroads. In fact, we are part of a larger group of churches called the FEC. Here's the FEC's mission statement. Establishing, reproducing churches worldwide. So while we want to see disciples made, the FEC's mission is to see churches make disciples or other churches. To kind of macro level, we want to see churches planting churches. And so this is why we at Crossroads have a residency program and we have a church planting residency. So we're bringing in young pastors and leaders that we can train up and send out to go on mission to plant more churches because we know there's more cities and more towns all over the U.S. and all over the world that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So on a macro level, this is what we're doing. And so if you were to join our on-mission group that we're going to start at the end of this, you might be familiar and you might see this chart. So I'm going to throw up a chart here. I'm not expecting you to memorize this, but I'm trying to illustrate, just like Paul had a very strategic goal in what he was trying to accomplish, so do we. And so on the top is the green, and that's kind of like a church planter, what a church planter would be is like a strategy. And on the bottom is the red. That's kind of what we as a church hold. And again, I'm not going to read through all of this, but you can, you can ask for it later if you want to read it. But basically, a church planner begins the exploring phase where they're praying about where God might call them, what city they might go to. Then they begin designing and thinking about what kind of church does this city need. Then they would begin building their team and seeing a team of core people that would want to serve with them. Then they would launch their service, maybe a public gathering together or reach out to the community. And then in phase five, they become a fully sustained church that begins seeing the church spread and more people and they build systems and all of that. That's kind of how a church starts. It doesn't just like, hey, just go to that city and start a church. <laughs> There's more intentionality than that. And on the bottom side in red, and some of this is happening right now, we're, for those of you that have heard, we've, we are hiring or bringing on a resident in March called Neshwan. His name is Neshwan. He's from Toledo, and he's an Arabic-speaking Christian. Uh, and we're just exploring what God might do amongst Arabic peoples. 
And so we're, we're adopting and we're feeling like God's calling us to reach out to our Arabic brothers and sisters in Christ and to reach that people group. And then we begin sponsoring and find a church planter that might be one that could reach that group. Literally, this is happening right now. Okay? We're praying about this. Then we begin partnering with other churches and seeing maybe we could leverage our resources together to see this church and these people reached. Then we birth this church, and there's a core team that forms around that, and I know some of you are already praying about this. And then we begin multiplying that that church becomes a spot where they can multiply and reach more. Right? Now, I'm showing you all of this. I know this may be TMI, right? too much information, but I'm wanting you to see that on a macro level, there's intentionality and strategy in how we reach the nations for Christ. It isn't just kind of haphazard, but it's, it's guided by even Paul's principles of strategy and how he did it. And so this is why we're doing it. But on a macro level, that's important, but the micro level of us being intentional is just as important. Because if we as individual believers in Christ aren't being on mission, then the church isn't on mission. Because we are the church. The church is not a building, it's people. And so as we as individuals are on mission, our church catches that missional heart and we see more people reached for Christ. So as you at a micro level, I love Ed Stetzer's quote. I have this in your bulletin, but I'm going to throw it up here. You know, so often we think, well, if I'm on mission, that means i got to be an all-star Christian. i got to have all these gifts. I love Ed Stetzer's line. He says, God has always chosen the willing over the gifted. God has always chosen the willing. Are you willing to be on mission? Are you willing to seek and honor Jesus with your life on mission? Then God can use you. And a great application that you could make with your life this morning is to simply list some ways that you can be more intentionally on mission. And I'm going to throw up like eight or ten of them. Here are some ways. You don't have to write all these down, but maybe there's a couple of those that you see that could be great ideas for you and your family. Maybe you come home today at lunch or or this week, you brainstorm with your family, your husband, your wife, or even your kids about how we can be on mission to our neighbors. You'd be surprised at how creative your kids are at sharing the gospel or talking to their friends about Jesus. Would you consider being on a church plant core team? Maybe you'd be a part of that. Maybe you have flexibility in your job. Or maybe you're a college student and you aren't sure what you want to do with your career. Would you consider giving the first year or two out of school to move to where one of our church plants are and be a part of that as you are growing your your internship or whatever it might be for your career? I love this phrase, think of evangelism like an alphabet. Alphabet. So often when we share the gospel with people, we feel like I have to get through everything in one conversation. I have to go from like A to Z. And so we need to have a two-hour meeting. Chris King's going to give me a sermon, and he's going to tell me everything about Jesus in one sitting, right? And it, and it almost overwhelms people. But I think if we think of it more like this, is, this took Paul two years in the hall of Tyrannus to have conversations about Christ. If we think about relationally, maybe I only get my neighbor from A to F, and then from F to H, and then from H to O. Just over time, we have a conversation about Christ and continually point them towards Christ. That way it doesn't mean like I have to go from A to Z and get a conversion on that conversation, but I continually love them and point them to Jesus. And last week, Pastor Matt talked about leveraging your home through hospitality or your workplace or your skills or even your social media profile. Maybe you reach out to one of our pastors. We'd love to talk to you about that. Maybe you make it a goal that I'm just going to pray for my lost neighbors this year. It's been said that when you start praying for the lost, you actually start seeing them. When you begin praying for your lost friends and neighbors, you actually begin to think about them and you actually begin to see them more because God's beginning to open your eyes to their needs. 
And there's more on there, great ideas. You can ask the prayer team to pray for you. Again, join the mission group. Now, I say all of that strategy with a huge caveat. Because you can have the best of strategies, intentionalities, but if the power of God is not working in your life, it doesn't matter. If the power of God is not active in fueling your mission, it doesn't matter. So intentional mission must be fueled by God's power. And I actually think that's why Luke shares the two accounts he does. Because in verses 11 through 16, you see two different kinds of people. One that had the power of God and one that didn't. (laughs) In verses 11 through 12, you see Paul, right? You see Paul, and God's power is so obviously flowing through him. Paul's ministry, handkerchiefs and aprons. I don't know why Paul was wearing an apron, but aprons were healing people and casting out demons. Can you imagine that, right? Hey, this is Paul's handkerchief, you know, healing, right? And I'm pretty sure Paul didn't say like, hey, I need to work on this hanky healing business, right? I don't think that's what he was doing. But God's power was just flowing through him and working in miraculous ways. But I think it's very wise for Luke to share the story he did next because when I read that, my first inclination is, I want that. I want to have healing handkerchiefs. I want to do that. I want to see, what do I got to do to get that kind of power in my life? Almost as if God's power can be wielded like a magic wand. This is exactly what the sons of Siva were doing. And it makes sense. You might not know this, but the city of Ephesus was a huge hub for witchcraft, a huge hub for witchcraft. You see it later on when so many people bring their scrolls and incantation books to be burned. Ephesus became known in that day and age in the first century as uh, they had these things called the Ephesian letters. And that's not speaking of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. These were the Ephesian letters. And what they were is they were books full of scrolls and incantations that had all sorts of spells and magic things that people would use to kind of make money, to cast spells on people, to kind of do sorts of witchcraft. And so what's happening is these seven sons of Siva are kind of taking this witchcraft of their culture and then they're trying to slap a little Jesus on it and see if it works. And it doesn't. It goes really, really badly for them. And it's clear in this passage that these guys don't actually know Jesus. Because listen to what they say. They say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. (laughs) What is that? What is that? It's all external to them. This isn't, I know Christ and his power is in me. This is, I've heard about this Jesus who Paul preaches. So come out like a magic wand, abracadabra. And the demon-possessed man sees right through it. Because the demons know who Jesus is, and James says the demons shudder, and they're terrified of Jesus. And so the demon-possessed man says, Jesus I know. Paul I know about, because he was an authentic missionary who was casting out demons in the town. I know about that guy too, but who are you? And again, pee down the leg. You know, imagine, just imagine if you were there and you were that guy. Um, Bill? My name's Bill. This is Fred and Tim, right? Like... They're terrified, and all of a sudden this demon goes after them, this demon-possessed man, and totally beats them bloody and senseless, beat the clothes off of them. I'm not even sure how that happened, but he beats them naked and bloody. And there's a lesson to be learned from this, and I think Luke puts these two examples there for a reason, because God's power is not formulaic, but an overflow of his spirit in us. God's power is not a formula to be solved or used but an overflow of the spirit that is within us. This is what the sons of Siva missed. It's not about praying the right words or incantations. It's not about saying or doing the right things, and God's power comes out if I do this three steps. 
It's about God's Spirit flowing through us, through, uh, through Christ. We have to align with how God wants to display His power. It's the difference between saying, God, I want you to do this in this way right now, versus God, I don't care what you do, just do something. Would you display your power for your glory at a humble place? Now, you might be thinking, Matt, I haven't cast out a demon recently, so how does this really relate to me? Here's some other modern examples of how we use God's power like a magic wand rather than humbly submit to him. Maybe you say things like this, well, I'm going to pray for you to be healed, and as soon as I'm done, you will be healed, almost promising something that perhaps God's Spirit has not given confirmation of. And that can lead people to denying Christ. It can lead people to be discouraged because what's wrong with me? Why wasn't I healed? Well, if you had enough faith, you would be healed. Almost saying that it's faith in faith rather than the power of God that actually displays healing. Or maybe you're sharing the gospel with someone and you say, well, if you believe in Jesus, all your marriage problems will be done and you'll have financial success. That's just prosperity gospel. Promising God's power like a formula. If you just follow these three steps, you'll have this. When Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. That doesn't mean Jesus can't heal your marriage. It doesn't mean Jesus can't give you prosperity. But why does he do that? And that's not the point. The point is that he saves you from your sins and redeems you from the inside out. That's the beauty of the gospel. Now, as we've seen already in this series, when we get on mission, God's power shows up. It begins to fuel us and shape us, and real results happen. You begin to see disciples actually made. Intentional mission, fueled by God's power, makes disciples. And there's a huge difference. That's the next point in the message. That's the huge difference between the sons of Siva, who just try and like, accommodate Jesus into their already existing lifestyle, and the people that come after that. In verses 17 through 20, there are people that, that come and they believe in Jesus Christ, and they're bringing their books and their spells, and they're burning them in the streets. And Luke makes a point of driving home how expensive these were. He says that they were worth 50,000 drachmas. If you don't have your drachma conversion kit, I'll tell you what that means. 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was worth, most commentators believe, like a day's wages. Like how much you would make in a day. So 50,000 days of work. And if you're still not following how much that is, that actually is 137 years if you worked seven days a week, 365 days a year. 137 years of salary is how much they give. And if you're still not following me, the modern translation of that, like the actual value of silver from then to now, uh, would be a drachma because it was a really tiny thing. But even if you just went on price of silver, it's about $35,000 in just silver. That's today. Imagine $35,000 2,000 years ago. This is like $5 million. This is a lot of money. So when these people are coming out and they are putting their books in the streets and they're burning them, it got so crazy. There was such a revival in the city and these people were giving up their, their, their sinful habits and they're repenting, trusting in Jesus Christ. It got so bad that the very next section of scripture, which you can read on your own later, it's crazy, a riot starts because there's a bunch of dudes at the temple of Artemis who make a living off selling these books and idols and nobody's buying them. And they're like, these people are blaspheming Artemis Temple, and they start a riot that lasts for hours, and it's just crazy. 
because the gospel transformed these people's hearts. They were giving up this lifestyle that they had. Now, you would have thought, they could have easily said, well, if I put this on Amazon, I could probably make a few bucks on this, right? Right? If I just sell these books, I could probably make a few million back. No, they didn't. They just threw them in the streets and lit them on fire. Because to them, it wasn't about the money anymore, it was about Jesus. This is authentic repentance. This is what happens when we begin to proclaim the gospel in power. Lives actually begin to change. And I love the end of verse 20 where it says, I'll just read it because it's so good. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The word of God was growing in power as these people were surrendering their lives to Jesus. And that church is what the mission is all about. The goal of our mission is not to make converts, it's to make fully devoted followers of Christ. Fully devoted disciples. That's why we're doing what we're doing. We're not just trying to get people to say a prayer or check a card or accommodate Jesus into their already existent lives. We're wanting to see our friends and neighbors and our towns transform from the inside out so that they become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ, that everyone would grow to maturity and mission in Jesus. No, none of us that come to this church right now would stay little babies in the faith, but we'd grow up to maturity and then we'd see other people follow. When you begin living intentionally on mission, disciples are made, and real-life change happens. It happens here in Ephesus where they throw their books and burn them. It's also started to happen in Africa. We begin sharing the gospel in these communities in Africa. Now, Africa finances is not as big of an issue because they don't have any money there, but polygamy is a huge issue in Africa. Many of the African men have multiple wives. What do you do with that? (laughs) All right, sharing the gospel. God, what are you going to do in these hearts? of these men who have multiple wives, which is clearly not your design. Within months of these guys hearing about Jesus Christ and seeing the word of God and being educated in the word, they begin training their sons not to marry multiple women. They begin discipling their children, don't do like dad did. Find one wife and honor her as Christ loves the church. They begin teaching their children the way of Christ. Isn't that amazing? The transformation, the authentic repentance happened, and it can happen here as well. As we speak the truth to one another, even though we live in a culture that's crazy about sex, we can be sexually pure. Even though we live in a culture where Facebook and social media and everybody's arguing mad at each other, maybe we can take our Facebook profiles and put them out in the street and light them on fire and burn them. (laughs) Whatever it might be for you, whatever it is in your life that's keeping you from following Christ and honoring him, maybe you can throw that out in the the streets and light it on fire today. I'm not saying you should light your computer, but you know what I mean, metaphorically speaking. This is authentic repentance. This is what Christ calls you to, and then what he gives you the opportunity to declare to someone else, a life really worth living is a life lived for Jesus. And when you are living intentionally on mission, fueled by God's power, disciples are made, and guess what? It begins to grow. Those disciples begin to make disciples. It begins to multiply. Because the mission is never done. This side of heaven Paul sends, after this story in verse 20 and 20, 21 through 22, Paul's like, you could have said like, all right, that was awesome. Let's kick back and, you know, have a drink, just chill, you know? No, he's like, I got to go to Jerusalem, and then I got to go to Rome. And Timothy and Erastus, I know you guys are my best buddies. Timothy's like a son to me, but I'm going to send you to Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, Philippians' book, right? So he sends them there. So he's like, all right, we got to keep going. You guys got to go this way. We might not see each other for a while. And then later in the next chapter, he's telling the Ephesus elders, I'm probably never going to see you again because I got to keep going. 
The mission isn't over until Revelation 5 happens where everyone, every nation, every tribe and tongue is sitting around the throne of Jesus Christ saying, worthy is the Lamb. This is the goal. So church, there's work to do. What role will you play in the mission of Christ in the world? Will you raise up your children to be sent out on mission? Even if that means them moving away from home? Even if? Did you know that the missionaries of old used to take their caskets with them on their ships because they knew they were going to die overseas and never see their family again? Would you be willing to give up your child for the sake of the gospel? You know, when we've planted churches, it's been really hard. We've sent people that we really love to, be, to, to move, to go to different places. And some of these names might be familiar with you. We've sent people like Wes, Hoffmeyer and, and Wes and Lynn Hoffmeyer and Levi and Rachel Stuckey to Napoleon. We don't see them anymore, even though Levi was on my youth staff and he was an awesome dude. We've sent people like Nate Hamblin away and we've sent people like Caleb Barrows, who's now in Kansas. We've sent people like Alex Reuter. We've sent these amazing people that we love. We've even sent our own congregation like the Chad and Beth Bowles and, and the Knopf Singers. They went to Defiance and they're at King's Cross and we don't see them anymore. More, which is sad, right? But the beauty is one day when we're around the throne and we're with our brothers and sisters who've been sent out all over this planet, we're going to be singing praises to Jesus and there's going to be more people around the throne with us because we left each other. And so we're going to be singing. It's like, hey, who's this? Oh yeah, this was the person that we reached in defiance. And this was the person we reached in Africa because we went out together and we spread out on mission. Yes, there's sacrifices for this mission, but it's worth it. Because we're going to all be around the throne singing praises to Jesus and glorifying him. Intentional mission fueled by God's power makes disciples who make disciples. What role will you play in that church? Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing story and account from Paul and his life. Thank you for your power displayed in the Ephesians and that church that we now have a letter written to started because of this. God, we thank you for their life transformation and that you've kept their story so we could hear it. We're thankful, God, that it was because of men and women like them 2,000 years ago that became Christians that then they told their children and their friends and then they, through their mission, spread to us. We know Jesus today because of what happened back then. And I'm thankful, Lord, that they participated in the mission of Jesus Christ, that you used a team of brothers and sisters in Christ all over this world to reach people, and it's still going. And this is exciting. God, show us how you want us to be a part of this mission, this gospel that changes the world. Would you display that, make it clear to us, even just one simple step? Maybe it's meeting with our family at lunch, talking about how we can reach our neighbors. Whatever it might be, God, reveal that to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.